Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Yeah, hi, I'm Steve Morris, uh, CEO of NPS MedicineWise, and I'm pleased to once again be joined by Executive Director of the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, Associate Professor Julian Elliott. Welcome, Julian. Uh, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yeah. Look, Julian, last time we had you on this podcast, I think well, it's way back in June now, uh, we talked about the role of the Clinical Evidence Task Force during this pandemic and the role of living evidence and guidelines and recent and upcoming clinical topics to be covered by the task force. Uh, and at that point, I think MPS Metamise had just joined the task force as a partner. Um, so look, seven months later, um, I was really keen, firstly, to do a quick rundown on some of the medicines that have been touted as disease-modifying treatments, and in some cases, cures, uh, along the way for COVID-19. So maybe just in a sentence or two, if you could, Julian, just run us past um, the, the current evidence-based thoughts on hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, dexamethasone, zinc, and vitamin D, if you could. It's <laughs> quite a list. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, in terms of hydroxychloroquine, uh, there's now actually quite substantial randomised data that gives us confidence that is it is not effective for the treatment um, of COVID-19. Uh, we have um, uh, left some scope for the use of hydroxychloroquine in trials um, for chemoprophylaxis uh, because we believe that further data there may uh, help to clarify the picture. But um, uh, certainly for treatment, uh, we have a high degree of confidence that additional information will not change the recommendation not to use hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Um, for remdesivir, it's actually a, it's an interesting time uh, as uh, the World Health Organization have just uh, issued recommendations uh, uh, not supporting its use uh, in people with COVID-19, we continue to have a recommendation, a, a conditional recommendation that clinicians can consider using remdesivir um, for people who are hospitalised who require oxygen but, but not ventilation. Uh, that's based on our view of the um, collective randomised control data to date. Uh, this really comes down to a methodological question around uh, looking at uh, the subgroups that were included in the trials of remdesivir. Uh, so the World Health Organization um, panel has taken a particular view, particularly in the context of um, uh, the use of remdesivir across the world, including in low and middle income countries. And we're in conversation with the WHO just to clarify the exact points that contributed to their view, um, but um, we are at present going through a process of just reviewing that approach and making sure there's nothing there that we've missed, um, but at the moment our recommendation stands to consider using remdesivir uh, in adults who are hospitalised, who require oxygen but not ventilation. Um, uh, so for steroids, yeah, so I think perhaps when we last spoke, the data was largely for dexa dexamethasone, but now with the report of additional trials, in including REMAC-CAP, which is an Australian-led uh, platform trial, uh, we now are able to issue recommendations regarding corticosteroids in general. Um, so we, we have a recommendation to use dexamethasone 
um, in adults with COVID-19 who are receiving oxygen, including those who are ventilated. Uh, but also there are uh, alternative uh, corticosteroids which can also be considered. So the strongest evidence is for dexamethasone, um, but other steroids that could be considered include um, hydrocortisone, uh, prednisolone, and also methylprednisolone. Uh, for um, zinc and vitamin D, uh, so we issue recommendations once we have uh, uh have identified randomized controlled trial data. Um, and so uh, to date, we do not have any recommendation regarding zinc. Um, and um, we also do not yet have any formal recommendations regarding vitamin D. Um, so we're aware that those, those um, uh, you know, there's still, still more research to be conducted um, to support or refute the use of those agents with COVID-19. Yeah, Thank, thanks, Roger. I think it's really useful for our listeners to you know, have that reiteration of where we now currently sit, given obviously the emerging evidence and evaluation of evidence over the over the last seven months. Looking in terms of, I suppose, additional emerging areas um, of research, um, is there anything you're keeping a close eye on at the moment? Yeah, so I think that um, one thing perhaps for your listeners to be aware of is that up until date, we have uh, largely not tackled areas around infection prevention and control. Uh, we've been working quite closely with the national group that is responsible for guidelines in that area. Uh, so that's the Infection Control Expert Group, or ICAG. Uh, and in the last couple of months, we've had a, a pilot partnership project with them looking at um, CPR. Um, so uh, infection control is an important consideration for anyone giving CPR. Uh, as you might imagine, during the pandemic. Um, and so that, that was a, a set of clinical flowcharts we produced in, in collaboration with ICAG. That's, um, that went very well, and the Commonwealth Government has now asked us to get um, more deeply involved in infection prevention and control topics. And so we've actually recently established a new panel, uh, which we imagine will be announced any day now, um, which will be tackling some of the core issues around infection prevention control in uh, clinical settings, so including hospitals, um, primary care clinics, and aged care. So that's certainly a, um, quite a substantial step for us as a task force, um, beginning to look at, at that, those sets of issues. Um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware that it, there's been a lot of controversy, um, so we don't underestimate the challenges of um, developing um, evidence-based guidelines in those areas, but it is certainly a very important area. So we're, we're um, you know, we're going to bring a lot of um, attention and resource um, to addressing those issues. Uh, in addition, the um, well, we've just talked about drug treatment. Drug treatment continues to be a very active area. Uh, it's probably our most active panel, and we expect that conti to continue right through 2021. So whilst you know Australia can be you know, very pleased with the position we're in at the moment. We, from day one, have always continued our work, regardless of the fluctuating numbers, um, because you know a lot of what we're doing is about preparedness. You know, making sure that we're constantly up to date, so that whenever there is an outbreak or further cases, Australian clinicians do have the resources they need. So certainly, drug treatment will continue to be a very active area. I think um, so. We did an estimate recently, and it's it's really only. Um, very small percentage of all the trials registered with it have reported something like 10% or so. So 
you know, there's still many hundreds of trials, drug trials still come and we'll be continuing to monitor them. Uh, and then the final areas around um, post, uh, post-acute COVID syndrome. So, um, uh, you know, there is clearly a number of people who suffer, um, you know, fairly debilitating ongoing effects um, after, after the COVID in, um, acute disease. Uh, of course, we've seen previously in many other infectious diseases, these kind of post-infective syndromes. We um, are aware that there's, there's not a lot of very high-quality data so far regarding prevalence of these um, symptoms, nor uh, really any, any data so far regarding effective interventions. But that's certainly another area that we're going to be watching very carefully. Thank you for that. Obviously, there's not, not a lack of issues to be, to be looked into and addressed. Um, and looking just in terms of, I suppose, um, feedback you may have received for the guidelines that you've produced, have you heard from clinicians on the ground how they're applying your living guidelines in practice? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we um, uh, have been running surveys uh, of clinicians and more recently we've done a more formal impact evaluation. So that's all still underway. But I think what we're finding is that really clinicians all over Australia have been using the guidelines either directly or to develop their own um, local protocols for their own clinic or hospital or health service. Uh, we've in, I guess the summary would be that um, the guidelines have been used in a variety of ways, um, that they've been used um, where people have been seeing patients with COVID, but also in other areas so that people are prepared and feel like they're prepared. So there's, a, there's an important element here about people um, having a sense of confidence about a single source of truth and a, and a single place they can go to, um, which I think helps to alleviate some of the anxiety and helps clinicians to feel more confident and comfortable managing people with COVID-19. Um, and I think what we're finding is that people really value um, this combination of the guidelines being comprehensive, uh, being trustworthy as based on very rigorous processes, but also up to date and, in, and incorporating um, the experience of you know many of Australians Australia's leading clinicians in this space. Um, you know we've had uh, uh, clinicians um, say things such as you know it made me it made me feel like I wasn't alone, um, or you know uh, I, if knowing that people were looking into the evidence, I felt supported. So there's, there's, I think, a, yeah, a very important element of this that is about um, reassurance. That's fantastic um, feedback, Julian. And obviously, look, um, given the, the challenge that you were faced with and the short timeframes, are there any lessons that you can reflect on, or lessons that you've learned in, in the process to date? I, I think there's, there's a number of lessons. I think the first thing to say is that um, we've really demonstrated that you can um, create rigorous national guidelines and update them weekly. Uh, you know, that that hasn't been done before anywhere in the world. Uh, I think many people would have thought we were somewhat insane taking that on at the start of this process. Uh, and it certainly has taken, you know, quite a lot of very um, strong project management, really, to, to make the process run. But, um, you know, in the end, it does run. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it is about breaking the work up into bite-sized pieces. So, you know, we need to move quickly each week to make sure we update. But it means that the amount of evidence we're having to review each week is, is, is feasible. Um, uh, so that's certainly one of, one of the lessons. I think the other is that, um, you know, the, the foundation of the partnership 
um, that is the task force is is really everything. Uh, we now um, have 32 national um, peak clinical groups um, as members of the task force. Uh, and I think as we mentioned in the last podcast, the model we use is that uh, each week we seek 100% consensus from all those 32 organisations before we update our recommendations. Again, that may sound <laughs> like a form of humanity, uh, but it actually does work. Uh, and we've been incredibly grateful and in, in, in impressed by the, you know, the, the openness for our partner organisations to, to work differently, um, you know, to move much faster than, than we, did, we all did pre-pandemic. Um, so I think that's, again, a very important lesson that you can achieve really strong consensus across a number of stakeholder groups. Um, if you you know if you get, if you get the model right, um, I think the other things are that um, we you know our focus really is on clinicians um, and making sure clinicians have that single source of truth. But I think we're also just become aware of how important it is for us to also engage with the general media. Um, you know, there's been a lot of controversy swirling around the general media over the course of the pandemic and i think that's been very confusing to many people in the general public so we've tried to provide a voice of um um, a trustworthy voice i guess um so that people can understand what the evidence does actually say and what it doesn't say yeah thanks is there any final message or or area you want to um talk to our listeners about Oh, I, I guess I would just um, take the opportunity to thank you, Steve, and, and MPS. I think it's been a great partnership so far. Um, you know, the, the assistance that NPS Medicine has been providing on dissemination, I think, has been fantastic. Um, and, you know, really, we, we could not have got the message out as broadly um, without um, your organisation. I think that, um, you know, going forward, really one of the things we want to build on further is is that element of, of dissemination and translation and then monitoring uptake and use. They're, you know, that's obviously an important part of the evidence cycle. Uh, we've done a bit on that, uh, but with, you know, time and resources and things, that's um, been somewhat limited. So, you know, we're quite keen to extend that further. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, cool. Julian. And look, thanks to the task force for, for all for what you've done. And, and as you said um, a few minutes ago, to make sure that clinicians don't feel alone and providing a single source of truth, which has been really important over the, over the last several months. So, so thank you and, and thank you to your organisation. Not at all. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, and if you require any further information, you can go to the NPS website. Thank you. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.